0: And, and all these years later, if I were to take you down to the Dornsife Center, I think you'd see a, like a thriving hub of community-based learning and activity, students running you know, a free law clinic, uh, people helping people with taxes, um, tutoring going on, people helping others get their GED. I mean, you name it, based on the needs of our community, we're working in partnership to provide solutions to those needs. And, and that, to me, just makes so vivid all the work that we're trying to do because it involves real academic firepower. It involves real civic engagement. It's place-based. It's helping the local economy because people are getting jobs and and all sorts of other opportunities as a result of that. And honestly, there's just a lot of good being done. And I think people just feel, wow, this is a real opportunity for our local university to help our community lift its...
1: And welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I'm very pleased to be joined today by John Fry, who is the 14th president of Drexel University in Philadelphia. Since his appointment in 2010, President Fry has led a remarkable transformation of the Drexel campus, including setting a national example for the execution of public private partnerships and becoming a powerful force for economic development in greater Philadelphia. Prior to Drexel, John was president of Franklin and Marshall College, executive vice president of the University of Pennsylvania and a management consultant for the higher education and nonprofit sectors. He has served on many boards, including the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Kresge Foundation, the American Council on Education, Lafayette College, and the Philadelphia Orchestra Association. He also has served as chairman of the Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia, and a fun fact, has served as chair of the NCAA Division III Presidents Council and chair of U.S. Squash, the national governing body for the sport. So we will include a link to John's full bio in the show notes so that you can see the depth and breadth of his remarkable background. But for now, John, welcome to the Ingenious U community. Thanks, Melissa. Good to be here. I wanna start by saying, I have long been impressed by the Drexel story. However, after having the opportunity to delve into everything that the university has been about, particularly since your appointment, I'm truly blown away by the depth and the breadth of your institution's impact. And in particular, I'm struck by the extent to which the achievements of the most recent era seem to call forth the spirit and the original vision of Drexel's founder, AJ Drexel. In a very powerful way and so here's my first question and it's multi-part um if you will we have many international listeners for ingenious you and some may not be familiar with drexel so can you tell us a little bit more about drexel what distinguishes it from other universities what drew you to drexel in 2010 and how do you respond to this sense that i have about drexel's transformation reflecting Uh, the founding vision of A.J. Drexel. Is that at all true? And if so, is it intentional?
0: Um, It is both true and intentional. I think the best way to honor the remarkable vision of our founder who um, created the Institute from whole cloth in 1891 uh, is to sort of try to keep up with um, what was really a sort of capacious vision he had um, back then which had a couple of dimensions that I think were really unusual. The, the first is that all were welcome. You know, women and men, blacks, whites, people from different racial and, and um, you know, ethnic backgrounds. That wasn't happening that much, if at all, in 1891. And so th- this idea that he opened his arms up um, and said, no, we want everyone to feel welcome at this institution. What a great sort of contemporary thing that he did back you know, almost 130 years ago. Um, the second thing he did was um, locate this institution not on a hill in the country or some other sort of posh place in Philadelphia, but literally in the middle of industrial Philadelphia, surrounded by rail yards and stockyards and very, very busy sort of manufacturing space. 32nd and Chestnut um, back in 1891 was not a bucolic place. This was never meant to be an ivory tower. Uh, it was always a place that was sort of knit into the urban fab- fabric of working class Philadelphia, which sort of leads to number three. He really wanted um, to educate future generations of, of Philadelphians to give them a chance to enter into the economy and, and do as much as they can to fulfill their, their potential. and from the very beginning, you know, our our triangle was art, science, and industry. So it just wasn't a technical institute. It, it, It was about art, it was about science, and it was about the connection of all of that to business. And I think the remarkable thing that he did back in 1891 was founding the institution with a $2 million gift to build our main building, where I'm sitting today, and then $1 million for art to hang on the walls throughout the institute, and $1 million Back in 1891, for art was the equivalent of 26 million dollars today. Um, he knew that these kids weren't going to take the Grand Tour of Europe, so he brought the Grand Tour to them. And it is—it is just, it, in so many ways, his ability to look around the corner and anticipate, you know, future trends was really remarkable. And I think the only way to honor that founding and that individual is to continue to do it ourselves all these years later. So I am—I am really sort of fired up by. You know the vision of my founder, and the only way to do him justice is to keep it going.
1: Mm, boy, that's compelling. And you know what i what I'm uh, struck by, and and you know this from all your years in management consulting is uh, the the best innovations are those oftentimes that originate in the core DNA of of an organization. And i I think the um, it's not very often that I see uh, in a college or university, that thread so strongly woven as what's the case uh, in in the innovations that have been put in place in the last twelve years. So um, it's it's exciting to hear you talk about that and to know that it is in fact a very intentional thing.
0: Right, and oh, it's general too. I think this probably the the, the second great innovation was post pandemic World mm-hmm. War One, when uh, the the president you know then of the institute announced the formation of a cooperative education program because people coming back from World War One needed the opportunities to get to work in, in that economy. And also coming off a pandemic, you know, it, it was a horrible time for this country. And he he basically stood up and said, we as an institute, you know, have a moral obligation and a responsibility, not only to Philadelphia, but to this country, to begin to educate the next generation of, of leaders. And he chose cooperative education as the way of doing that. And, and so what's, what's great about this place is that it calls each generation of leaders to make their contribution. And I feel very much called to this kind of work today. It's not just my job, it's a real calling.
1: Mm. Well, you are known, in fact, for a standing for your standing passion for urban planning and transformation. And I think this actually predates your time at Drexel. So I'm, I'm curious where this passion and dedication to the vision for an urban university originates, what influences have shaped your thinking, and, and why is this personally important to you?
0: Right. Well, you know, we're all sort of creatures of our sort of circumstances and environments, and when I started to work at the University of Pennsylvania in 1995 as, as Executive Vice President for an extraordinary leader named Judy Roden, mm-hmm. uh, and we had an extraordinary chair of the board, Roy Vagelos, who had uh, up until then been the CEO of, uh, of Merck. You know, I think both, you know, Judy and Roy, um, when they hired me, said one of the things that we're very concerned about has been the, the sort of deterioration around the Penn campus, and so West Philly in, in the mid-90s was was not a great place, it really wasn't. And it was to the point where you have this magnificent world-class, you know, Ivy League university that, um, you know, was sitting in the middle of a, a profoundly struggling um, neighborhood with all sorts of injustice and inequity. And, you know, I think right away being sort of called into that work to say, okay, what does, what does a great urban research university do in those circumstances? And and you know, uh, we, we set out to um, as much as we could to transform not only our campus, uh, but also to work with our community to make sure that the surrounding neighborhoods were, were stronger and better versions of themselves and also safer and cleaner with a better public environment. And so I think what, what ignited my passion for this work was just walking into the situation without any prior knowledge at all. I mean, I had literally no background in any of the things that I ended up doing, but with a strong sense that this is, this um this work was so crucial to allowing Penn to continue to sort of advance on, on the trajectory of, trajectory of academic and reputational excellence that I'd have. And then if if we weren't going to be successful in that, it was gonna compromise that trajectory and that excellence. And it, it felt to me like a very sort of profound moment where, you know, your place and and your environment really count. It's either mm-hmm. part of your competitive advantage. Or it becomes your competitive disadvantage, and I, th- I think sort of fueled by that sort of sense that, you know, the stakes are really high here. That I sort of plunged into this work for the the first time, and you know, I left in 2002 to go to Franklin and Marshall, which had its own version of those problems, even though it was in a, you know, a small, you know, um, you know urban city in the middle of a rural uh, county, Lancaster County, and then coming back in 2010 to Drexel in very very different circumstances, but in many respects the playbook has remained you know, the same, you know, place based anchor institutions have have obligations to their surrounding neighborhoods and and communities and regions. And you know, um, we have to sort of step up to those responsibilities and make sure we're not only doing for ourselves, but we have a platform that can do for others, whether they're Mm -hmm. our students, our faculty, our staff, or our neighbors, our visitors, whoever they may be.
1: Well, I'm going to come back and ask you a little, in a little while about that playbook, because I think that will be of interest to other leaders who may be struggling with some of the same kinds of concerns. But but for now, I want to ask you about the goals that you came, that you laid out when you first came to Drexel. And you had a set of ambitious goals, um, three primary goals that that really served as the framework. The first to become a truly comprehensive university that would also become the most civically engaged university in the nation. The second to become a model anchor institution that would drive economic and social progress through the power of innovation and partnerships. And then the third to become a more consequential institution that serves the public good through the power of experiential learning and translational research. In your 12th year as president, how would you assess Drexel's performance against the goals that you laid out? And are there some key achievements associated with each of those goals for which you are especially proud?
0: Well, I mean, those were all ambitious goals and and (laughs) in, in selecting them and framing them, part of my thinking is that those are goals you truly never achieve if you're really doing the work in the right way the finish line is always 5 yards ahead of you and just when you think you got there they move it 5 yards ahead because this is this is work that is is really sort of intergenerational you know you're just working towards advancing the institution as a comprehensive university as the most civically engaged university as a consequential anchor as a sort of an economic catalyst for you know the region and that that work by definition can never really be done because just just when you you feel like you've got it there are so many more needs. And I think in, in framing this, in my mind, um, I, I think a lot about um, the mission of, of land grant public universities, the great tradition out of the moral act and extension and you know things that are in, in many ways sort of, you know, kind of old fashioned sort of American concepts that you know, um, back in the day spawned the creation of the, the, the sort of greatest university system in the world um, still to this day especially through, you know, the public sector, but then I, I think are important ways in which private universities can also act as, as um, you know, um, can act for the public good. And, and so, you know, one example that I'm really proud of is in thinking about growth as a comprehensive research university, um, you know, becoming, um, you know, um, the most civically engaged university in the country and also being an anchor. Uh, institution of consequence is our work um, in our Mantua neighborhood, which is immediately north of where we where I'm sitting today, to create what we believe is the first urban extension center in the United States. It's called the Dornside Center for Neighborhood Partnerships. Um, it's probably now about eight years old. And it was the idea of taking old-fashioned agricultural extension in an urban setting. And basically, um making an opportunity for us to work closely with our neighbors to identify and work together on solving long-standing problems so you know it 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 it, it was intentionally not founded to be the experts come off the hill with the solutions and go into the neighborhood to identify the problems it was it was more a place-based strategy an extension center where neighbors and university students faculty and staff can meet um, in community to identify common problems, uh, work on solutions, um, and build real community. And, and all these years later, if I were to take you, you know, down to the Dornsife Center, I think you would see a, like a thriving hub of community-based learning and activity. And you know, my students running, you know, a free law clinic, uh, people helping people with taxes, um, tutoring going on you know, um, people helping others get their GED. I mean, you name it, based on the needs of our community, we're working in partnership to provide, you know, um, solutions to those needs. And and that, to me, just makes so vivid all the work that we're trying to do because it involves real academic firepower. It involves real civic engagement. It's place-based. It's helping the local economy because people are getting jobs and, and all sorts of other opportunities as a result of that. And honestly, there's just a lot of good being done. And I think people just feel, wow, this is this is you know a real opportunity for our local university to sort of help our community lift itself up.
1: You know, there's a wonderful video on your website, uh, and one of your associates, Lucy, um, is is interviewed. I'm I'm blanking out on her last name, but uh,
0: Lucy.
1: Yes, and and she's interviewed about the the, the early days of this effort, and. Uh, the suggestion of let's just get together for a meal and the conversation and the good ideas that really emerged almost in a grassroots kind of way. And it's striking, it's quite a moving uh, video because you see the you see exactly what you're talking about in a with a human face to it.
0: So exactly. and then the simple idea was let's have dinner. Yeah. No no program, no pitch, no nothing. Let's have dinner and it started small all those years ago and with the exception of the you know the pandemic years it's a tradition that's still going strong the last one i went to before the pandemic i think there were 300 people there just having dinner yeah. and sometimes when you're just having dinner and you have no preconceived notions and you're sitting next to a bunch of people you've never met before it's amazing what can happen
1: yeah oh well, for for sure so now, I've, I've also read a lot about the rise of innovation districts and knowledge clusters in the Promise Zone. Can you tell our listeners more about this work and the, the part that Drexel has played?
0: Sure. So um, I, I think if there's sort of a holy grail for our institution is how do we link um, innovation, which is a core part of our you know academic and research mission, to inclusion so that, you know, people have more opportunity as a result. And so all this started with the designation of of our part of West Philadelphia as a federal promise zone by President Obama back in 2014, something that we helped work with our neighbors to get that designation. And then soon thereafter came uh, something called the Promise Neighborhoods Grant, which was a $30 million million federal grant for us to work with seven other K through eight public schools, neighborhood schools, in this Federal Promise Zone to begin to provide, you know, tutoring and support and other services so that there was sort of more comprehensive wraparounds for these schools. So the Federal Promise Zone sort of encompassed a large part of of West Philadelphia. And that I think represented, you know, important ways of creating inclusion. So hold that for a second. You know, meanwhile, we're thinking about our mission as, you know, a a research intensive university that does technology transfer, that creates economic development opportunities. And as we looked around the geography of other parts of West Philadelphia, we saw really interesting ways of of maybe building these sort of innovation districts. We have two, one to the east of our our campus and one to the west part of our campus. You know, working with, you know, development partners and and, and companies to create these clusters of, of you know, um, science and and technology, you know, uh, based work through companies, but also through, you know, uh, research and innovation. And over time, um, these things began to get connected. That's why I say the holy grail is innovation and inclusion connected. And so the the, the story that we like to imagine, and again, like I I said before, this is all a huge work in progress, you know, is that a young girl, you know, growing up um, in Mantua, um you know attending one of those seven schools comes through that experience um goes to high school comes to drexel you know gets her you know undergraduate degree in computing and informatics and then goes to work um as a data scientist at a gene therapy company in schuylkill yards which is one of our innovation districts there's schuylkill yards in new city square so someone who grew grew up two or three miles from here Gets to take advantage of all the educational um, and co-op opportunities, and one one day ends up working in one of the most sort of innovative companies that that we know of in this region. We want to give as many people as possible the opportunity to take that journey within you know one nine one zero four, which is our which is our zip code. It used to be you know if you grew up in certain parts of West Philadelphia, you wouldn't get access. To other parts of West Philadelphia because you wouldn't necessarily have the educational support and the opportunity so we want to make sure that you know as, as we do innovation and as we do inclusion we connect the two so that everyone is invited into these opportunities
1: it's mm, a wonderful model and again I know there's there's more information on the website for people that might be interested in in learning more and some great visuals um, that really show uh, what's What's here and what's coming. Right. And
0: and the thing I should say about that kind of work is that, you know, there's no way we could have um, um, advanced any of that without partnerships. So everything I talked to you about today, you'll find a partnership behind. There's hardly anything we sort of do by ourselves without committed partners, not for profit, for profit, governmental. You name it; there are partners, and I, I think you know part of part of our. I think um, um, our experience in building partnerships is we're we're a cooperative education university. You know, we have sixteen hundred you know corporate and not-for-profit partners around the world that we work with to provide co-op opportunities for our students. So we know from a very early stage in our development as a university, like how do you make partnerships? I think. In this generation, we've taken that that experience and really tried to build it out so we can accomplish some of the things that we're talking about today.
1: Well, that's striking, and you obviously have an area, an institutional area of expertise in that regard that I think all of higher education could be looking to these days, because as you know, that's that's going to be increasingly important for all of us. Um, we can't we can't survive on our on our own bottoms. Um, so, now you've recently launched Drexel 2030, Designing the Future, Drexel's new 10 years strategic plan. I believe this is the second strategic plan under your, your leadership. Is that the third? Okay. Yeah,
0: we did so, 2011, 2014, 15 was an update of the 2011. We did a year of, of sort of evaluation in 2018, and we started... Um, this new planning process right at the beginning of the pandemic, probably October, November of 19, and then finished it during the pandemic.
1: Okay. So, well, according to the website, integrity, integration, inclusivity, impact, and innovation are the watchwords of this plan, which is described as being uh, different from prior strategic plans. So, from your perspective, what's the big idea that makes this plan different?
0: Well, I think, I mean, the big idea sort of goes back to your very first question about like, how do you take um, inspiration from your founder? And so we talked about, you know, sort of art, science, and industry in the triangle back in 1891. And what I really like about this plan is that we continue to think about connecting these broad areas, but they've been contemporized. And, And so there's, you know, design and creativity, you know, which kind of represents the art. You know, um, you know, the the science um, is around healthcare because we have a lot of healthcare that we we do now, and and things like you know uh, informatics, and then the technology is around engineering. So we we've taken this sort of a simple idea of art, science, and industry, looked at it in in, a, in in a 2020 lens, and said we still have the right idea, but what we need to do is you know basically connect. All of these disciplines which have evolved in such amazing ways over the last 125 plus years and connect them again and so everything running through that plan you know has a sort of a creativity lens you know has a health lens and has a technology lens Um, and one of the things we did also at the end was sort of wrap a lot of this around social sciences because we know for advancement of society we need to think about history. We need to think about politics. We need to think about, you know, literature and, and the arts as well. And so what I what I love about this plan, um, number one, is we did it during the pandemic. We didn't put our, our pens down. We kept working all the way through. We talked, one of the ways in which I think we got through the pandemic so successfully is that there wasn't a day when we weren't talking about 2030. I mean, it's as, as tough as 2020 was in 2021, we kept focusing on 2030. We knew we were going to have to, you know, if to do our jobs right, it wasn't sufficient just to get past what we were dealing with today. We had to think about 10 years from now. So that was really helpful. And then an amazing group of people who came together from across the institution who really sort of poured themselves into this. And as a result, uh, much more so than our 2011 plan, this is a work of real collaboration.
1: Mm. Well, in the scope of the work that you have carved out to be undertaken and that you're already undertaking is is highly ambitious. And as you know, the best strategic plans sometimes fall short when it comes to execution. And I I was showing your plan to one of our strategy professors at Bay Path because I was so impressed with... Uh, the way it was laid out and everything that's described on the website and he said to me and I told I told him I'd ask this question on his on his behalf but he said find out what the plan is for execution how are they going to uh, bring together both the vision and the execution and make sure that they're they're actually delivering and uh, making it happen
0: Yeah so I, I think that in in some ways is is a kind of a um, um, a leadership and management decision to say, you know, we have this great plan, but we need ownership uh, and accountability in order to make sure we see it through. And we've had the, the great good fortune to identify a chief strategy officer actually throughout that process. One of our colleagues who um, has a big background in, in research and medicine, Elizabeth von Boxdale, she, like Lucy Kerman, she just sort of played such an outsized role in in the formulation of this plan. So myself and the provost, Paul Jensen, and Helen Bowman, our executive vice president, went to Elizabeth and said, you know, we'd like to give you a new job, and we'd like you to be our chief strategy officer, and we want you to live and breathe the implementation of this strategic plan, you know, from from now until, you know, we get to the point where we have to, and Elizabeth is you know, highly organized, very disciplined, very sort of um, data-based in her approach. And she has led a series of large implementation teams over the last year, and she'll continue to do that going forward in helping us like scrutinize the work that we're doing, get the results that we said we were gonna get, and then just sort of keep moving through it. And so um, there's a tremendous emphasis on blocking, tackling, eliminating institutional um, barriers to success, rewarding people and then and then moving on. And you know, the, the apparatus that Elizabeth runs is very, very significant. And what's great about it is that it, it's kept this whole thing so fresh. Like the the plan has not hit the shelf. It hit the streets. And as a result, you know, people are working on that. And and she is she is quite a taskmaster. And I I'd say it's it's a simple it's a simple strategy that you know it's it's never sort of one and done. It's just you know, you finish and then you start to move and you have an active management strategy. And you know there's not a board of trustees meeting or um, you know a, a significant management meeting where Elizabeth isn't talking about the implementation of the plan.
1: These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu. Now, I wanna pivot and go back to something you were talking about earlier. Um, and it has to do with your unique leadership path uh, that you have taken to the presidencies of Franklin and Marshall and now and, uh, Drexel. Um, and as we had, had discussed, you served at the University of Pennsylvania as executive vice president, chief, chief operating officer. Uh, if you will, where you are credited with playing a very significant role in conceiving and executing Penn's five-part strategy for revitalizing um, West Philadelphia. Um, I'd like to ask you to just go a little bit deeper, if you will, to talk about how that experience shaped the leader you became, particularly as you went into the presidency at Franklin and Marshall and now at, at Drexel. Um, so are there some through lines that you can draw across yeah. the years?
0: So, so um, and maybe this is one of the benefits of going to a liberal arts college. You realize early on that, you know, um, all these disciplines are sort of connected. And I think back in the mid nineties at, at, at Penn, you know, the crime issue was very significant. And so we started, you know, thinking about how do we build a, a sort of a great you know, public safety organization, far beyond, you know, what we had at that point. And as we started to do that, we started to to think a lot, not only about public safety, but about public environment, clean and safe streets and, and well-lit streets and, you know, green streets. And that led us into a whole sort of set of conversations about, well, if you're gonna do that, how do you tie together institutions and neighborhoods and, and begin to sort of form a coalition to create a better public environment that led us to the formation of the University City District, which is a business improvement district, um, which we formed back in 1997. In fact, we're celebrating our 25th year. And then as we started to work so intensively with the community, one of the things we, we heard about was, you know, basically, you know, th- there's no place to shop. Commercial corridors are, are really sort of pretty derelict. And so we started getting into development thinking about Development along commercial corridors with, you know, um, with 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 shops and bookstores and other things that would really sort of animate those commercial corridors. Where, by the way, you didn't have to be a pen affiliate to walk in and get a cup of coffee or to buy a book. So open to all. And as as we then did more in commercial corridors, we started to hear from neighbors about, you know, um, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if if we had higher quality public schools in our neighborhood? You know, old fashioned you know, sort of neighborhood schools. And so we created something called the Penn Alexander School, which is a very high performing K through eight university assisted public school in West Philadelphia. That led us into conversations about affordable housing. We kept pulling the string as a good liberal arts graduate is supposed to do. You just keep pulling the string and, and eventually, you know, you, you see what the other issues and the problems are. You know, we, we got into you know workforce development, you know, um, all sorts of other issues, because the, the more we work with our neighbors and 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 our elected officials and people from the school district, the more we realize that these problems and these challenges were all actually interconnected. So in the end, the five pillars were you know a safe and clean environment, affordable housing, vibrant commercial corridors, um, um, jobs for all, and great public education. That that became the the frame, and it's interesting, you know, for a place like Penn, which has such tremendous scale and resources. When I went to Franklin and Marshall in 2002, when I started to understand the city of Lancaster, um, 35, 40,000 people. A lot of those were the same problems, mm-hmm. you know. You know, public education, affordable housing, commercial corridors, you know, jobs, place-based activities. So we, you know, that little college did Yeomans' work to address the particulars of its community, and then coming back all those years later at Drexel it was still the same sort of issues. And so a lot of the work we just, for example, opened a university assisted K through a public school in, in U city square, which is one of the big innovation districts I talked to. So, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty amazing whether you're a Penn, an FNM, a Drexel, a Temple, whatever the, whatever the institution you are, the, the, these issues in communities are very, very similar. The particulars are, are maybe distinct and unique, but the big building blocks of how to build a great community you know, are still the same. And and so that playbook has, you know, was big and then it got, you know, changed one way, changed another way, but it's still a good playbook.
1: Mm. Well, and and as you know, good leaders grow into greater and more effective leaders by applying the lessons that they have learned from past experiences. And you obviously uh, have done that from what you learned at Penn and then in the other two two environments. But, but the experiences that often shape us most are those are successes, but also failures. And so if you can think about or retrace your experiences going back to Penn, to the present moment, are there some defining lessons either in terms of success or failure that have shaped your leadership development, philosophy and style?
0: Yeah, so I think probably the most important one is always, always think while you're doing good work about maybe the unintended consequences of that work. So I I mentioned the Penn Alexander School, an unqualified success, you know, when it opened in in 2001 um, to the point where um, the real estate around that school in its, because it was a catchment area based school became so valuable that it started to force out the very people that we were trying to serve and support. Um, and, and so what happened was there was gentrification. Now, back in 2001, when we you know, opened the doors to that school, and by the way, that was a, a university assisted K through eight public school. We, we didn't try to create a laboratory school, a private school with a big tuition. We wanted an old fashioned neighborhood public school. So we felt like by doing that, we were gonna make this open and accessible to all. And I think for a while that worked, worked really well. But then after a while, people wanted to go to that school. So they moved into that neighborhood and they bid up the real estate. Uh, and the next thing you know, the neighborhood changed and it became a very different kind of neighborhood. Um, improved, yes, but improved for fewer people. So back in 2001, probably one of the conversations, you know I should have had with my team was, okay, this all looks good. But how's it going to look in 20 years? Are, are, is there anything that we're missing? And I think applying you know, that learning to what we're, what we're doing today here in University City leads us into the issue of affordable housing. So we're ha- while we're having tremendous success in these innovation districts, what we're seeing now is that you know, developers and companies are moving in and it's starting to happen again. People are going to get displaced and kids are gonna get displaced from the very schools that we set up to benefit them from. So what can we do to intervene in that environment? And so as we think about growing these innovation districts, we're also thinking at the same time um, and in the same moment, how how do we create affordable housing strategies as well? And so, you know, it's, you know, 20 years later or whatever it is, I feel like I'm still learning and trying to anticipate and, and not just saying, okay, you know, we think this is gonna work for now, and it should be great, but we can't just think about that. We have to think about, well, we'll still be great in 20 years. How will history judge us as a result of that? And I think in some cases, history is judging us harshly because while I know our intentions were good, some of the outcomes didn't prove to be as, as, as good as we had hoped.
1: Mm. Well, I thank you for sharing that and for your candor. You know, your, the lesson, the leadership lesson uh, and the questions I have application to so many different different situations and you know I think about how often the unintended consequences are the things that really come back to uh, to bite and so how you get your hands around those when you're in the midst of making making decisions that involve so many different people is really a challenge.
0: It is. And it it was, I mean, it was hard to do the work that we did back then. It was very hard. You know, no one really sort of had a playbook for that. We sort of, you know, um, learned as we as we did. Um, We had a great, tremendous team from Penn and from other partners who who came along with us and to have, have accomplished some of the things we did back then was was terrific. But you always have to ask yourself as a leader, okay, you know, what am I missing? I must be missing something. You never have it all down. Um, and so you have to force yourself into that mode of not just sort of seeing success as something that's temporal, but, you know, looking for enduring success, which means you got to be really hard on yourself.
1: Which is not easy to do, is it? <laughs> so not easy for, for a lot of leaders to do. Um, one thing that stands out from your time at Penn to your time at Drexel is the contrast between the two the two institutions. Now, Penn, of course, has many more financial resources on which to draw, uh, to pursue initiatives and objectives, while Drexel, as I understand it, has had to be more innovative and creative. And one of the things that I hear a lot from folks that are in the trenches, particularly at financially constrained institutions, is that the lack of resources is oftentimes a, a. a no starter. It's the thing that really um, serves as a barrier to innovation, uh, if you will. So from your experience, can you talk about how universities of relatively modest means can still innovate and can still uh, play an outsized uh, kind of beneficial role as an anchor institution?
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, not not to be too harsh, but I think sometimes when people say, well, we lack resources, therefore we can't, we can't do anything. That's a crutch. It's an excuse. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so, you know, I went from, from Penn to little Franklin and Marshall that had a, maybe had a $40 million operating budget and, and the lift that that small college was able to do, and I won't go into the details, but it was, really landscape shifting in terms of what one little college could do because it was so determined to do it. I mean, Franklin and Marshall had no more resources before we started that work than it did after, but its ability to make partnerships, governmental partnerships, you know, private sector partnerships, partnerships with not-for-profits was the game changer. So, you know, we didn't hire a staff at 50, no one gave us a hundred million dollars to do the work, but we did the work and we did the work because we figured, okay, you know, this has to be done. These these certain things that we sought out to accomplish have to be done. We're not gonna spend our way to victory, okay? So what are we gonna do to get it done? And we didn't use the lack of resources as our excuse. We said, okay, let's figure out, and let's be very clever about how we put together these big sort of public-private coalitions. And on we went. And, you know, like the landscape shifting things, which which were very expensive and very complicated, um, were able to be achieved because I think what we did is we led not only with partnerships, but with a shared sense of mission, that this is going to be something that will lift up this entire community. We're not just going to be the beneficiary, everyone is going to be the beneficiary. We had a lot of opposition, a lot of skepticism, but there was like a a small group of us who were bound and determined to to get this work done. And I think likewise at Drexel, even though, the circumstances again are different. So much of this work is by creating partnerships to get people aligned, to, to call them into larger issues, which most people wanna be called into, especially in society today. I mean, we need to do things. We need to do big things to deal with the problems that our communities and our, and our country faces. And I think if you can if you can figure out a mission that's big enough and a tent that's big enough to include people and ask them to do their part and maybe just a little more, it's amazing the results that you get. I mean, extraordinary things can happen. But if you just sort of look at your operating budget and say, well, I don't really feel like I have the money and I'm just gonna close it and go home, you get the predictable status quo. And I mean, if there's anything I'd like to say to other institutions is that you've got way more capacity than you think you have, way, way more capacity. Just, just take a look at the human capital and your student body and your faculty and your alumni and in your communities. And there is a way, there's always a way.
1: You know, it strikes me uh, that vision is absolutely critical, that the the role of the leader in providing the vision around which the community can organize so they can see what's possible um, is such an important part of of helping people raise their sights beyond the constraints.
0: Right, and I think that, you know, that vision comes, you know, from, from many sources, but one of the things I would, I'd suggest too in doing this kind of community-based anchor work is a lot of that vision actually can come from the people um, who live in neighborhoods and you, know, you need to ask them their opinion. You know, we talk about how do we do deep listening around here and, and really try to understand what's going on. And in many cases, the ideas you know, that lead to the solutions are right, right next door to us. We just have never sort of engaged, you know, the knowledge and the wisdom of these communities. And I think, you know, so much of, of what we're proud of today in, in, in terms of the work that we try to do in, in West Philly, you know, really the inspiration came from our neighbors who were sort of on the ground looking at situations and saying, if we can only sort of organize to sort of, you know, you know, you know move the mark on this or that. And that's sort of where it came from. It wasn't us dreaming up a whole bunch of new ideas in some institute somewhere it was like listening to our neighbors figuring out how we you know build you know teams and honestly without it being perfect just going out and doing the work you know the more you do the work the more you sort of figure out how to do the work and and the idea that somehow it has to be a you know a a pristine strategic plan that's just perfect I, i mean we're like all about learning by doing
1: So let me pivot again, Uh, before COVID and certainly before the national reckoning over racial injustice in the wake of the murder of of George Floyd, there was an ongoing debate about gentrification, which you have um, already uh, mentioned and the degree to which urban universities such as Penn, Drexel, Columbia and the like and others contributed to displacement. Now everything that urban universities do or don't do in their communities uh, seems to be considered through an equity lens and in fact there was an article in the New York Times about this um, in in December, uh, I believe. So, has your thinking evolved over the responsibilities of urban anchor institutions to their cities and Uh, What strategies do you embrace? What strategies do you reject? How do you you respond to um, the notion of uh, the equity lens as the, um, you know, what the the framework really through which you're looking at the role of the university?
0: Yeah, I I think that it it really has been an epiphany to me. When I think about um, you know, the sort of situation we had at, at, at Penn, at Franklin Marshall, at Drexel, I, I think the lens I was looking through was the institutional lens. How do we advance our university? How do, we, how do we secure our university? You know, how do we make our university more, you know, sort of competitive and therefore we need to do these things? And that's the sort of self-interested lens. And I think, you know, more recently, particularly given the work in the Promise Zone, I mean, that that really sort of Opened our eyes to the fact that that institutional lens is is simply not broad enough. That we need to look through a much larger lens, the equity lens, um, you know, the lens of 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 avoiding sort of unnecessary, you know, sort of harm to communities. It it, it, just because you want to advance what you're doing institutionally doesn't mean it has to be at, at the expense of others. I mean, one simple thing. Is not having enough housing on our campus, you know, allowing your institution to grow and grow and grow, and then one day what you realize is that you know you've outstripped your your um, residential housing capacity. Students are moving into the neighborhoods. They're taking you know um, you know what, what were formerly single family homes now become you know sort of um, multifamily apartment dwellings because landlords look and say, well, there's a business here. So, given all the student demand, I'm going to buy this single-family home, and I'm going to convert it to six or eight apartments. And if you're living next to the six or eight apartments as a single family, guess what? It's not going to be that great anymore. So, so our neighborhood o- over time has gone from a, a fairly sort of stable single-family single fam, single single-family-owned um, um, kind of neighborhood into something that's become completely transient. So, one of the interventions that we've tried to make is start building student housing again, and we've added 32, 3300 you know, beds, and we'll do more in the future to begin to sort of reverse that trend, realizing that the growth of Drexel had such a profound and negative impact on our neighbors. And we didn't even think about it. It was just like, good, enrollments are up. Great, bring them, bring more in. We you can't really, you have, to, you have to take an equity you know, uh, lens on that and say, okay, well, what benefits this institution is probably going to be in direct conflict with the quality of life for the neighbors. So how do we do that? How do we how do we get growth, but how do we manage that growth and do no harm in the process? Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, so many mistakes were made generationally by places like Drexel and Penn and Columbia and, you know, Yale. Hopefully, there's a bit of a movement going on right now to kind of rectify those mistakes and and certainly not to make any more of them, but perhaps even to undo some of the harm.
1: Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which. I wanted to get your take on what a healthy and mutually reciprocal partnership relationship between a university and its community looks like. How, how would you describe that? How do you know when you're there? Um, and back to this notion of the playbook for other presidents who wanna really work on this, where do they start?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I think what it looks like i mean if you were here with me today i, I would take you on a bit of a tour and i would show you a few things that i think sort of represent that so i the, the first place i i take you to is our the, the newly opened you know university assisted k-8 through public school up on 36th street it's called um pal slash science leadership academy middle school so it's a k-8 we have about 800 810 kids there and i take you over there because first of all you know it's a great brand new building that allowed us to consolidate, you know, a whole bunch of, of, of substandard space into one beautiful space, where these kids are now learning in an environment which is, you know, absolutely fitting that they have, all you know, full of technology and, you know, great recreational space and a really nice cafeteria. It's just such a beautiful, sunlit, you know, um, you know, place that makes you feel hopeful and happy when you walk in there. And not only for kids, but also for their families, and the neighbors throughout the area. I, I take you there because I feel like here's a place of hope and progress and education and 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 growth and 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 development. And then I, I certainly take you over the Dornsife Center so you can see what we're doing in terms of uh, of extension. I take you over to the new um, Arlen Specter National Squash Center, back to squash, that we just opened up about a year ago because there are now 10 brand new public school teams that call that their home, where kids are learning to play squash and getting tutoring after school and meals and equipment. So they can go out and learn that game, but they can also be in an environment that is really complementary to the school environment and the extension environment that I'm talking about. So I think what it looks like is a campus that's not only full of college students, but also full of kids, full of kids, full of families, full of people walking back and forth on our campus and feeling like this is my campus too, whether I go to Drexel or not, it doesn't matter. You won't find a gate or a fence on this campus. You can walk from one end to the other and you, you, are, you are on city streets, you are, there's a sense of place, there's a sense of gateway and promise and, and welcoming, um, but there's not a sense of restriction, like you don't belong here. In fact, when you, when you walk into the squash center, you open the front door, and it says literally on a big sign, you know, you belong here. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you belong. This is, and I, I think that's that's what it looks like. Everyone feeling like they belong, whether they're a kid from the neighborhood um, or you know, an alumni who's coming back after not being here for 50 years. You belong, and I think I think that's what that's what we want this to look like. But like I said in the beginning, you never really get there because there's always so much more work on the other end of that string that you're pulling.
1: Mm. Boy, well, there's a lot from your experience that others can learn from. And uh, I would imagine, uh, I would think that others must be seeking you out or seeking those at Drexel out to learn um, about uh, the work that you have done there because it is truly um, significant and transformational.
0: Yeah. Well, and our playbook is for everyone, it's free. Yeah. All they have to do is call and we'll give them our playbook. And the only thing we'll tell them is that you're probably going to have to adapt it to your own situation. But uh, look, this is joyous work. It's important work. And, you know, we're on a mission to have as many different institutions benefit from the hard-earned things that we've done to get to this point. And again, the nice thing is that it's, you know, we're, we're, we're pleased and we're proud with what we've accomplished. But, boy, is there a, a, long, a long way to go.
1: Yeah, that's terrific. So my, my last question about Drexel has to do with the academic enterprise and how that uh, relates to everything else that you're talking about. Because I would imagine there may be some who say that for every dollar, for every hour that goes towards civic engagement, civic initiatives, that's something that is then uh, taken away from the academic enterprise, and so how do you how do you think about that, or how how would you respond?
0: Well, I I guess two things. One, this is not a zero sum game. You know, just just the way we're sort of set up from a budgeting standpoint. You know, most of the money that goes into the civic work comes from other sources that we didn't have before: philanthropic sources, government sources, you know, um, foundation sources uh, that you know we tapped. Because um, you know, people were really interested in this larger civic agenda. and otherwise, you know, they probably wouldn't have invested in us. And it's interesting how many sort of non-drexel um, philanthropists have stepped in to help us do our work. Some of our largest gifts in our history have come from people who never went to Drexel, but they sure care about Philadelphia and they sure care about Philadelphia's neighborhoods. And so they're investing with us and You know, those resources have helped really sort of advance our game. But the thing I'll leave you with is that probably the most important work that we're engaged in right now relative to all of this is drawing our faculty into this work. I mean, because along with the Board of Trustees, the faculty is the self-perpetuating body of institutions like ours. You know, administrations come and go, faculty and, and, and trustees stay, and they perpetuate themselves. And right now, we've seen extraordinary leadership from our faculty across so many of the you know domains I talked about because infused in a lot of this work in the extension center and the school and everything else is faculty expertise. And once you get your faculty into this work, you you have a you have a really um, better than even chance of sustaining that work going forward. And to me, you know, the, the most rewarding things that I've seen are the faculty-led initiatives, you know, because it 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 brings together, you know, research and teaching. With, with you know civic engagement. And I think that's, that's another great triangle.
1: For sure. Okay, so my very last question, it's our signature question. It's more of a personal question of you. We ask of every guest, what is on your radar right now that you're really excited about? And it doesn't have to relate to Drexel. Is there something that, a new project, a new idea, something you're reading, something you've seen, an innovation that's well, occupying your mind?
0: I, I'd say what what um, I'm really excited about is what's happening here in Philadelphia with innovations around um, cell and gene therapy. I, I feel like you know Philadelphia's position nationally and internationally is already so strong, and what's happening now is that these companies are really beginning to congregate in in a sort of critical mass type of way um, in in Philadelphia, and we are literally sitting in, in a position where we can host. These companies not only physically, but also provide them with the talent that they need to make this sort of cell and gene therapy revolution an essential pillar of our economy, which is one of the ways in which we think this will lift Philadelphia up and provide so many opportunities going forward for next generations of Philadelphians. This, this is what this is what is happening. We're playing a significant role. And, you know, stay tuned.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been an inspiring conversation. And I'm grateful for your time and for the terrific work that you are doing there in in Philadelphia.
0: You're very kind, Melissa. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the conversation.
1: I'm Melissa Moore Solson and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious U is a production of Chalop, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at BayPath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.